Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn in the book of Nahum. Uh, and then also you might find Jeremiah while you're there because we're going to read a pretty, like a large section of one of the passages in Jeremiah this morning. But we wrap up our series on Nahum this week. Then we're going to take a couple of week break. And then we're actually going to do the book of Zephaniah. And so I would encourage you to read through Zephaniah if you haven't. It's not very long. It's a short book. And uh, you can read it on your lunch break or whatever um, time you have before you go to bed. Uh, but we're going to be doing um, that uh, after the next couple of weeks. We've been in our series in Nahum, and the title of our series is War and Peace. Nahum is a prophet in the Old Testament that um, basically is trying to tell the people what is coming, that war is coming, but there is peace that's to be found, and that you're not going to be able to create your own peace. It won't last because there's always a war coming until the final war, until God finishes everything. And so Nahum is, again, warning a group of people. He's warning the Ninevites. The Ninevites were kind of an enemy of God's people. They didn't start out that way, but chose to be an enemy of God's people. And in the beginning of his book, Nahum says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. That's kind of the war side. That God is going to come and he is jealous and avenging for his glory and for his creation that we've marred and we've messed up. And so, so that's the, the war side. And on the peace side, Nehemiah or Nahum at the beginning of his book says, look to the mountains, the feet of one bringing good news and proclaiming peace. So he says, even though war is going on, even though war is inevitable, God sends one to proclaim there's a pathway to peace. And that hasn't changed in all of eternity. And We've been looking at that. The first week, we looked at the fact that the first thing Nahum does is he lays out the character of God. He doesn't hold back. He gives the full breadth and character of God. We're probably not even used to this because in our culture, so often, we don't give the full breadth and character of God. We either give like all of his like rough and difficult parts of his character, or we give all the nice parts that we like. We try not to like overlap those, but Nahum says, look, Yahweh is is what he says, Yahweh is, and then he lists a jealous, avenging, fierce in wrath, go to the next slide, fierce in wrath, furious with his enemies, slow to anger, great in power, good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He just lays it out. This is, he doesn't even hold back. He's like, listen, Nineveh, I know you have all your different gods and all your different beliefs, and you've conquered all kinds of empires and adopted their gods, and, and I get that. There's only one God. His name is Yahweh, and this is what he's like. And you've got to make a decision about that. That's how he opens up his book. Then he says, after he lays all that out, he says, and if that seems hopeless, don't it's not because one is coming who, who's going to scatter, but he's also going to gather. And we looked at the fact that the entire Old Testament points to a Messiah that would come, someone that would come and rescue us. We're still looking for that today, Right? We elected a guy, he didn't rescue us. We elected another guy, he's not rescuing us either. It just seems to get worse every guy we elect. Because there's no one that's going to fix this except the one who knows how to scatter and gather. And that's God himself. And then lastly, we looked at last week as we kind of looked at the last part of chapter, or first part of chapter 3, God says, I am against you. He says it twice actually. He says, I am against you. This is the Lord, the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And there's no greater 
kind of weight than to think if there is a God, he may be against me. And God spells it out to the Ninevites. He said, look, I am slow to anger. I am loving, but I am against you. I don't want to be against you. I, I don't want to, to have my wrath on you. I, I, I don't want that, but I don't have a choice because I'm just and I can't just let things slide. That's not how I work. And that's why Jesus came was to say, look, I know that God is against you, but he is for me, and I'm going to die in your place. And so if you are for me, then I take the place of the wrath you deserve. So God is no longer against you. The question is, are we for him? And now this week as we wrap up, I want you to remind you just a little bit of the history. Because if this is the first time you've come, you, you haven't seen this. For those of you who have been here a few weeks, you have. But the history is this. In 930 B.C., the kingdom of Israel splits. Right? It splits because, number one, they were never supposed to have a king. God said, I want to be your king. And they said, no, we want a king like everybody else. It's what we do. Right? We say, God's, God, this is all the stuff I want. He's like, I, I don't want you to have those things. No, no, I want all those things. Okay, fine, you can have them. But I still love you, and you're going to have to learn from having all these things that it's probably not what you want. And he gave them a king. It was a terrible situation. Then he brought another king, King David. And even through their mess, God decided, even through David and the mess of David, I'm going to bring my king, the king I always wanted to be for you, through the line of David. That's Jesus. Because he was of the line, the family line or heritage of David. And so Israel splits, and that's David's son. Solomon was the wisest king, so to speak. But he wasn't wise in his actions. He was just really wise up here. He was really stupid in his actions, honestly, if you kind of look through things. He didn't do things wisely. Anybody that has 700 wives and 300 concubines is not smart. Let's just be honest, right? I got one, and I know I'm not smart. I can't imagine having 700, okay? Not wise. And, and so Solomon tries to keep the peace by making all these treaties, by intermarrying and doing all this stuff. And in the end, the kingdom splits. His general, his warriors go one way, and then his son goes another way with some other warriors, and they form a north and a south kingdom. At that same time, God is raising up the Assyrian Empire because, see, God knows what's coming. He knows what he's going to get, need to get to do, or what he needs to do to get the attention of his people. So he begins to raise up another nation that's going to discipline his people, his children. And so Jonah goes, and after a couple hundred years, almost... 150 years, so to speak, a little bit more. Jonah is prophesying to the Ninevites. The Ninevites have become very wicked. Jonah goes and tells them about Yahweh God. They surrender and cry out to him and are saved. Jonah's not very happy about that. He wanted them all dead. Kind of our hearts sometimes with certain people. And needless to say, the Assyrians repent. Then the Assyrians forget God. They go and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. God says, that's okay, they're really wicked. He allows the Assyrians, but he tells the Assyrians, don't, kill, don't annihilate them. Treat them kindly, as kindly as you can. I know they're fighting against you, and you're going to have to fight, fight back, and you have to kill some of my people, but be kind to them. The Assyrians said, no, we're not going to be kind. Now the judgment is on the Assyrians. After a while, the Assyrians forget God, and now the southern kingdom is kind of a vassal to Assyria. They've got to kind of pay tribute so that Assyria doesn't kill the southern kingdom. And Assyria is not really interested in the southern kingdom at this point. But then a guy named Sennacherib rises up, an Assyrian king, and he can't stand Yahweh God. He can't stand the God of Israel. And he decides he's going to strip all of Nineveh and all of the Assyrian empire of any record of God's existence. And then he's going to go after Judah to destroy Judah. He tries to do that. 
his army is slaughtered by God, and then his two sons kill him. Be careful not to take on God. Be careful that God isn't against you. After that, and during that time, a king named Manasseh, who was very wicked but then ends up repenting, there's the prophet Nahum. He's prophesying in the kingdom of Manasseh, when Manasseh was a vassal, which is, pays tribute to Assyria. Now Nahum comes along and he calls for repentance. Some maybe think that that helped lead to Manasseh's repentance, Nahum's prophecy. There were other prophets as well at this time. Then there's wicked King Amnon in the southern kingdom of Israel. He reigned two years, was killed. Then Josiah becomes king at eight years old. They're like, who do we put in as king? You know, they keep killing all the kings. Let's give this kid a chance. Maybe they won't kill a kid. Josiah leads the greatest, one of the greatest revivals in the history of God's people ever as a little boy because he just wants to read the Bible. I, I just want to know the Bible. And he leads a revival across the nation as he reads the Bible and says, why aren't we doing this? This is, this is God. This is his word. What? what? Why have we twisted it? Why can't we just take it for what it is? After Josiah, the nation grows wicked again. And Nineveh falls to the, Ninevite, to the Babylonians, which is what Nahum is prophesying. And then later, Judah falls to the Babylonians because of their wickedness. Because they kept thinking God was for them, but in reality, God was against them. They kept thinking that the day was coming when they would get what they wanted instead of looking for the day that God would give what he wanted. Now, as we finish up the book, here's how we finish up. Because to have a war means in a war people are scattered. People run for their lives. We're in the midst of seeing a war in Europe and people are refugees. They've run to other countries. Everything's a mess, right? It's a disaster. They're scattered. Oops, sorry, went too far. Uh, they're scattered by war. We're also scattered by peace. Because see, if you choose not to accept the terms of peace, you have to run for your life from the one who has the power to enforce the terms of peace. See, we forget that. We think peace is this thing where we just all kumbaya and get along. That's not peace. Not, in, not, not right now. Someday, but not yet. Because we have this wickedness in all of us that always challenges the peace and we want everybody to go where we're going. We don't want to go where everybody else is going and so we end up scattering one another. So even in peace, there's a sense of being scattered because there has to be authority that brings peace. We have to agree on truth to have peace. Otherwise, my truth doesn't meet your truth, which means we're at a war and we have to decide what's really true. And if you don't surrender or I don't surrender to the terms of peace, somebody needs to die so that someone's in charge of the peace. You don't believe me? Look around at our world today. Look at our own culture. Look what happens when we just let people do what they want and we don't enforce the peace. We become scattered. There are people moving out of cities. There's crazy stuff happening all over our nation because we're scattered. We don't know what to believe. We don't know what's true, and we're scattered. Nahum 3 says, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of where we are as a country. 
a scattered people wondering who in the world can gather us together. Can Obama gather us together? First black president? Can Trump gather us together? He's not a politician, he's a businessman, that's gonna help us. Can Biden, the old grandpa, been in politics, knows how the system works, can he rescue us and gather us together? We just be, keep coming more and more scattered and more divided because it's only God that's going to do it. And that's what Nahum lays out. Look at Nahum 3.12. He's talking to this empire. This, at this moment, the Assyrian Empire is one of the greatest, maybe top 10 empires ever. But at this point, they're the top empire of the world. The top. To, to prophesy this, to say these things would be insane. And he says, all your fortresses are like fig trees. With figs that ripen first when shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Nahum is telling the Assyrians, he's telling Nineveh, you think you guys have all the fruit. You think you've got all the food. You think it's all going to be okay. Figs ripen twice a year. There's the first crop of figs. They would ripen near the spring, near Passover, and then there would be the second ripen of figs, the second fruit of figs, and that would happen at the Feast of Tabernacles, Rosh Hashanah, in the fall. It's kind of in conjunction. And so you see God using the symbol of the fig tree all the way through Scripture. It's used over and over again because it falls within his boundaries of the calendar he set up and the harvest. Because remember, in this day and age, food was everything. I don't know about you, but we might figure that out here in the next six months to a year for the first time since the 1930s. I don't know what's going to happen. I wish I could promise you peace and I, I don't know but I'm telling you he's looking at the Ninevites who are completely powerful they have the largest walls and the fortresses we looked at that last week God sends a great he allows a great rain and flood the Babylonians break the they break open the dam that the Ninevites had created so they could get water for their city and it floods the walls and so the walls cave in and they're able to just march in and destroy them. All of their fortifications fell in, which is what Nahum said would happen and the Ninevites couldn't believe it. That's never happened before. God can do anything. And so what he's saying is the first ripening of your figs, which is kind of the, the first crop, the enemy's just going to open their mouths and it's going to fall in. Like, they're going to take it all. You're not going to get any of it. Then he goes on and he says, Look, your troops are like women among you. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. This is Nahum saying, Look, what's coming is your troops are going to act like women typically act in battle, trying to protect their children and what they have. You think, well, that's kind of rude. <laughs> it's not. God is clear that when the, he says over and over again, we looked at this a few weeks ago in Isaiah, when God says when women and children are leading in a culture, it's a sign of a curse, not a sign that the culture's doing well. The number one common denominator of men that are in prison are fatherlessness. Number one common denominator. And the reason the other second cannot common denominator there is they're poor is because they had fathers who didn't provide. 
It's, it's, we know this stuff, but we keep trying to solve the problem some other way than just looking at what God says and saying, wow, he has a created order. He has a responsibility. The men are supposed to be the chief dyers in a culture. They are to lay down their life, not to have hobbies for themselves. Their hobby is supposed to be to care for their family and their culture. And when the men's hobby is to play golf all day, not that golf's bad, but they're going to do that at the expense of their family, we're done. I'm not against hobbies. But God himself has Nahum say, look, your troops are going to act like women who are panicked because their men have left them. And in the panic, they're going to try every man and everything to try to keep their family alive and keep their children alive. And they will open up themselves wide open to even the enemy because they're trying to survive. How many wars do we have to go through where we see that that's exactly what happens in almost every war? In World War II, when the men walked into France, the women welcomed them openly. We don't talk about that. We talk about Vietnam and we talk about these other wars, but in World War II, back then we didn't talk about sex. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. It was wide open. And the men were happy to take it instead of saying, no, we're here to liberate you, not use you. We're here to give you freedom and a hope, not take it from you. We're here to be fathers, not impregnate you and leave and go back to the United States and you have to raise a child. I didn't write the book. But Nahum says, look, that doesn't mean women aren't valuable. It means that men need to be men and women need to be women. And if we're not going to do that, God says, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to wipe out your culture because it's already wiped out. He goes on and he says, fire will devour the bars of your gates. Nineveh had these huge gates to protect the city. And he said, fire is going to devour them. They're they're just going to march right in. You are not going to be able to stop what's going to happen. The Old, the New Testament, the Bible says that uh, someone who is willing to sleep with someone that's not their wife and commit adultery, they might as well put fire or hot coals in their lap. You might as well just put it on the gate and see how that feels. Because that's what's going to happen if you keep going down that road. I mean, it's the same. God is giving this metaphor of all the things that give you pleasure, the fruit, the sweet fruit, the, 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 the relationships. I'm telling you, it's, it's going to destroy you. You're going to be scattered if you live this way instead of surrendering and repenting to me. He goes on to say, this is Nahum kind of being sarcastic. He says, draw water for the siege. Now, what they would do is they would siege a city. You don't want to destroy a city because if you destroy a city, what happens? You can't use any of its resources. Like in war in these days, you didn't want to destroy things because you wanted to try to like get them to surrender so then you could use all their stuff. To destroy it means then you can't use any of it. You got to rebuild it all and you got a big mess. So they would lay siege. They would put an army around the city and they would starve the city out until it was to the point where they were dying inside, eating even people, which happened in Judah, 
when the Babylonians seized Judah, they were actually eating their own young. They were eating the dead to stay alive because they wouldn't repent to God. They got that far deep into trying to save themselves. And we'll do the same. You don't think you're capable of that? I promise you, you are if you don't know Jesus. I promise you. And so he says, draw water for the seeds. He's like, oh yeah, go get all the water you can. That's going to save you. That's like preppers right now, right? Everybody prepping. Listen, you can prep all you want, but if things collapse, you'll just last a little bit longer than the other guy. And then you got to make a decision that when the other guy shows up at your house to get your stuff you prepped for, am I going to shoot him or not? And do I have enough ammo? If, if things get as bad as they're getting ready to get for the Ninevites, that's how it's going to go down. Does that mean we don't prepare? Does that mean we don't try to make sure we have responsible lives so that we can give to others and be a blessing to others in the midst of the war and the mess? Absolutely. So that we can tell them about who Christ is. So that we've lived wise lives. We can tell them about a hope that we have and how we've lived peacefully and lived simply in our lives. Absolutely. But he says, draw water. Strengthen your fortresses, he says. Oh yeah, you see the siege company, so, so be sure you do all the right military things, Assyria and Nineveh. That's going to save you. Do all the right military actions and you'll be protected. No, no, you won't. And that's what he's doing here. He says, step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. He's like, make sure you're filling all the holes when a hole gets blown in the wall and restack the bricks and like work really hard to make it all, keep it going because it's not going to last. And then he says, the fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. We don't understand locusts. In Africa, they still understand locusts. Just a few years, locusts, just a few years ago, there was a locust plague that hit most of Kenya, and there were millions that starved. You, you didn't hear about it because, you know, we don't really care about those people because they don't have power and money. I'll just be honest. The news media doesn't report on that kind of stuff because it's like they're not important. Almost, I mean, they were so decimated by the locust plagues that were coming through Africa. And now it's been more regular. It's happened a few times that these locust plagues are coming back. And he says, it's going to devour you. Multiply yourselves like the young locusts. He says, try to get everybody to come defend you. Get all your, your friends to come. It's, it's not going to work. You're not more powerful. And by the way, the only reason your friends are your friends is because you prop them up militarily. And when they say you, see you getting beaten, what they're going to do is they're going to run to the other guy because they're really not friends, they're merchants. You've made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. You've got all these merchants that you trade with and that you have your military that allows the trade to go back and forth to protect you so that trade keeps going so that you can get all the goods from the world to you and you've made them more numerous than the sky, but I'm telling you, when they see you're going to fall, they're going to go make treaties and partnership and merchant deals with somebody else because you're done and they see it happening. And they're like, we're out. We're going to go to the Babylonians so I can keep making money and keep my family. Does any of this kind of panic you a little bit? When you think of our own country and our own circumstances, does any of this kind of give you pause to go, Wow. Because if it doesn't, wake up. 
I don't know how much longer we're going to live. I gave you 900 to 612, over 300 years. We're not at 300 years yet. That Assyria existed as an empire, and they were wicked, and then not wicked. And I, same, with the, same with the children of God. Like, I don't know how long we have. I do know that we, we're not going to last. There's only going to be one empire in the end, and that's going to be a benevolent monarchy. <laughs> Jesus will be king, and we'll all love it. And he'll be the most generous, benevolent monarch to ever exist, and we'll never complain. And we won't get upset about taxes, because there won't be taxes. So we won't overthrow the king. Because he can just make stuff out of nothing. So there's no need. We have no need of anything. That's, that's how we're going to live one day. Until that time, we're going to have seasons of war and seasons of peace. Back and forth until God decides he's going to gather what he's scattered. And that's what Nahum is laying out. He is looking and he's saying, look, you think it's all under control. You think you can control all this. I am telling you, you can't. You you can't. So the question is, are you going to believe Nahum? Are you going to believe what the Bible says about really what to build your life on? About repenting and crying out to God? Or are you going to believe the world and believe the empires around you and choose the empire you're going to believe? Russia, America, Canada, I don't know, move to Mexico. A bunch of people from California are moving to Mexico right now and taking their wealth with them to move to Mexico because they're sick of California. I don't know. That's exactly what he says is going to happen because you're just concerned about being merchants and using. You're not concerned about righteousness. He goes on and he says this. Your court officials are like the swarming locust and your scribes like clouds of locusts. Your politicians are locusts. Amen. He goes on and he says, your scribes, you know, that write laws and hold you to laws, the Supreme Court, they're locusts. (laughs) They don't really love you. They don't really care. They're just enforcing things. Ah, that makes, makes a lot of sense. Thanks for saying that, Nahum. He goes on and he says, which settle on the walls on a cold day. So what locusts will do is they'll hide in the walls and settle in the walls on a cold day. But when the heat of the day comes out, they take off in droves. Because they use less energy. And they, 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 they're on the breeze and the heat and they can fly easier. And it also means that the crops are dry and they're ready to eat. He goes on and he says, King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. The people that are supposed to be your pastors and shepherds and tell you the truth are asleep at the wheel. They're telling you what you want to hear. They're not telling you what's true. They're not warning you and preparing you and teaching you how to walk with Christ and how to bring others to Christ and how to surrender your life. They're telling you how to prep to keep your life. They're asleep at the wheel, he says. And then he says, your officers also sleep. Those that are supposed to be not just protecting you by being shepherds and representing you and praying for you, but the ones that can actually enforce the officers, they're asleep too. How much more do we need to see people running into stores in our country and looting stores while police officers literally stand outside and can do nothing? We think we're so smart. This book is how many thousands of years old? And we have not changed as a people. We're the same. We're the same selfish, wicked people if God doesn't change us. 
it doesn't go away. And we might have seasons of war or seasons of peace, but in the end, we just all get scattered again. And then we rally around something and we get scattered again. And then we come under an empire and then we scatter again. That's all we keep doing because God's saying, I'm just going to keep letting that happen until you're done with it and you just come to me and surrender to me. He goes on, he says, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. No one. We keep looking for someone to gather and we're not going to find it. It's got to be in him. Look at the list that we just went through. You ready? Nehemiah says, you're looking for hope in these relationships. Look at what it says. Troops, merchants, politicians, legal people and scribes, shepherds or spiritual leaders, and officers. Where's your hope? Isn't it how good of a merchant you are and how kind IU is to you as the merchant you partner with for your income? Where's your hope? Because these things are going to pass away and these people do not have the best interests of God in mind. Does that mean we don't participate with them? Does that mean we don't recognize the need for them? No, they're still needed. They're still there. But we need to ask the question of, What's my response when I, when I know this, when I feel scattered in my life? Do I run to the merchant? Do I run to the, to the politician? Where, where do I go to find the hope that I need? Where do I go when it seems like all the authorities, the father figures in the culture, all these father figures are just gone and all the children are scattered? What do we do? And Nahum is telling Assyria, that's the right question to ask. Now, if you think to yourself, well, the Assyrians, they were like that. They were like Russia. They're those other people that didn't believe God. They're the wicked people. Here's where we go to Jeremiah. Let me read for you the words of Jeremiah to the southern kingdom of Israel. 40 years, he spends 40 years writing these words before the southern kingdom of Israel has the exact same fate that Nineveh has. Jerusalem is sieged and falls just identical to Nineveh. It's like you're looking at the same pattern. Here's what Jeremiah said to God's children, people who called themselves believers in God. Here's what Jeremiah wrote. Jeremiah 10, 21. How stupid are the shepherds? I thought we weren't supposed to say that word. The Lord they have not sought. They don't seek the Lord. They seek the merchants. They they seek the politicians. They, They seek the positions of influence. They don't seek the Lord. For this reason, they have failed, and all their flocks are scattered. If you know me or talk to me any length of time, you will hear that one of my greatest frustrations in the modern church is how we just allow sheep to be scattered and we don't challenge it. It breaks my heart almost every day. It drives me nuts that we will allow sheep that are branded in a certain family to go to another family and that pastor will never wonder why there's a different brand on this sheep in my church. Any other place in society that's called theft, we celebrate it in the church. Well, just as long as they're somewhere, 
Well, why did they leave? Was the shepherd trying to treat them of a sickness and now they're taking the sickness to another church and they're going to kill a herd and a flock? Well, I can't judge. I don't know. Like, if you care, you, you track your sheep. He goes on, he says, I know, Lord, that no one chooses their way, nor determines their course, nor directs their own step. You can get all the troops on your side, you can get all the merchants on your side, you can get all the politicians on your side, and in the end, you're going to find out they can't trump God. They can't go above God. That you think you're making all these choices, and in the background, God's like, I'm patient with you. You wanted a king, I'll let you have it, but... Yeah, you still don't get what you want. Correct me, Lord, but with equity, not in anger, lest you diminish me. Jeremiah's like, I know we need to be corrected. I know I need to be corrected. I know you're a jealous, avenging, just God. Would you just please correct us in a way that doesn't put all the wrath on us at once? Because if, we, if you do that, we won't have anything left. See, Jeremiah is telling the people, and he's saying to himself, like, He's not saying, God, don't do it. He's saying, when you do it, I recognize I need discipline. I recognize we need discipline. But please, when you do it, don't do it with your full wrath. Hold back a little bit, please. But I know I need it. Where's the shepherds that are preaching that today? I mean, we're trying ne like, never to discipline our children in any way that makes them feel bad goes on he says look at this pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you on the tribes that do not call your name he says there are people who say they're believers there are tribes who say they believe in Yahweh and they are not calling on Yahweh they're calling on Baal and Asherah and Molech which are all names of other gods for they have utterly devoured Jacob and have laid waste to his home they do not recognize that you're the one in control and that you're the one and who's the promised child. They don't like your plan, so they've laid waste to your plan and they're trying to find their own plan. Jeremiah goes on to say this. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Woe. Whenever there's a woe in scripture, it means like woe. <laughs> Like you should like, oh wow, that word was used. I need to like pay attention. Woe to the shepherds who allow the sheep to scatter and don't call them to come together. He goes on, he says, this is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the shepherds who shepherd my people. You've scattered my flock, banished them, and you've not attended to them. I will attend to you because of your evil acts. You haven't attended, but I'm coming to attend to you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will gather the remnant of my flock from all the lands where, they, where I have banished them. Now God says, even though I allowed it to happen, I'm still in control. Even though you think that you're a shepherd and you're doing all this stuff, uh -uh, I'm still in control. I'll gather them back. They're my flock. I will return them to their grazing land. They will become fruitful and numerous. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them rightly, who will do the right thing. They will no longer be afraid or dismayed or will miss anything. We've got a bunch of scared shepherds running around in our culture. 
scared of offending people, scared of this, scared of that. Stop. What does God's word say? I'm not saying run around with a broadsword like Braveheart and cut people's heads off. That is not biblical manhood. It's not. We've made that biblical manhood, but that's not biblical manhood. Biblical manhood is dying for people. It's laying down your life. It's thinking through things. It's understanding that I'm going to be dismayed. It's going to be hard. And then look at what he says. I love this. This is the Lord's declaration. He says, the days are coming. You're scattered right now. In your life, in your marriage, in your families, in your health, whatever it is, there's a scatteredness to your life. The days are coming, I promise, the Lord's declaration, when I will raise up a righteous branch of David. Solomon wasn't the righteous branch. Rehoboam wasn't the righteous branch. Manasseh wasn't the righteous branch. Amnon was not the righteous branch. Josiah was not the righteous branch. They kept thinking that every time they got a new king, he's going to be the righteous branch, and then he ended up not being the righteous branch. And then they're shocked. Oh, we got to get rid of him because he's not the righteous branch. And they keep trying to find a righteous branch, and God's like, "Uh, it's, it's me. I never wanted you to have a king. Do you remember that conversation? He says he's going to raise up a righteous branch through the mess of David. I don't know what mess you're in. I don't know what mess you've caused. I don't know what mess has been caused on you, but I promise you, God wants to raise up through you, maybe not in your lifetime, but someday, a righteous branch of Jesus that shows off to the world. That's his job. That's his goal for us. And he says... He will reign wisely as a king, as king, and administer justice and righteousness in the land. True justice and righteousness. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. Israel still doesn't dwell securely. They're at war with everyone around them. So even though they're in their land, they're not secure yet. Because Jesus hasn't come back yet to give them back the land. He says, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is what he will be named Yahweh, our righteousness. The one who will save us, Yeshua. Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. It means Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And only a righteous person can truly save us. Because anybody else that tries to save us isn't righteous, and what they're going to do is use us. He goes on, he says this, the days are coming, the Lord's declaration. will It will no longer be said as the Lord who lives, who brought the Israelites from the land of Egypt. As the Lord who lives, who delivered the people through the Emancipation Proclamation. Do you realize there are more slaves currently in the world right now than than the entire Atlantic slave trade ever produced? Let me repeat that. There are more slaves currently around the world in slavery than the entire North Atlantic slave trade ever produced. That's just the current numbers. That doesn't look back over the last couple of decades, in human trafficking, in slave work. Do you realize that most of what you have for your phone and your electric car come from slave labor and children in Africa going into cobalt mines to get the cobalt out that keeps your lithium battery from setting itself on fire? But hey, we need electricity, we need iPhones, so who cares about those kids that have to go get cobalt? We're going to solve the world's problems 
Go electric. It's just going to cost a few hundred thousand, maybe a few million children. We haven't changed. We're going to celebrate June 19th. Praise God that we don't still have a slave trade in our country that was so wicked. Praise God that there was a president who finally said this isn't righteous. But if we think we've got it all together and we fixed it, we're nuts. We are so wicked inside. Does that mean we're worse? No, we don't have child labor. And thankfully in this country where we're doing slave labor, praise Why don't we? Oh, because Christian people read the Bible. And decided that's not a good idea because we love God and God doesn't want children to be treated that way. He goes on and he says, But as the Lord lives who brought and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the land of the north, from all the other countries where, they had banished, where I had banished them, they will dwell once more in their land. He says, I know you're scattered. I know you're all over the place, but I am telling you I'm coming for you. And I am going to gather my people back together. So stay where you're at. It's okay. You can survive. You, I'll be with you. Then he goes on, he says, concerning the prophets, Jeremiah says, and God says, my heart is broken within me and all my bones tremble. I've become like a drunkard, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. He says, I look around at the prophets and it's so frustrating to me to see those that say they proclaim God's word and they aren't. And he goes, I look like a drunk person when I proclaim God's word. I look like I'm a crazy person because I'm like, this is what God says. Oh, he's nuts. Jeremiah goes on to say, For the land is full of adulterers. The land mourns because of the curse. And the grazing lands in the wilderness have dried up. Their way of life has become evil, and their power is not rightly used. Let's just write USA right next to that. Because both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil. This is the Lord's declaration. They don't pursue me. They don't want to know what I have to say. Therefore, their way will be to them like a slippery path in the gloom. They will be driven away and fall down there, for I will bring disaster on them the year of the punishment. This is the Lord's declaration. Among the prophets of Samaria, I saw something disgusting. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. Baal was a god that you basically did sacrifices, then he would give you what you wanted. He was the prosperity god of the Old Testament. Baal was the prosperity god of the Old Testament. You, you do certain sacrifices and do things, and Baal comes through for you. The God of Israel says, you do certain sacrifices and you do things, and you have to trust me. And they're like, yeah, Baal's better. I like the, I like the Baal model. That's just gives a promise there. There's something I'm going to get for this. God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to give it to you someday, but you have to trust me to continue to do what I've asked you to do, and you may not get it in your lifetime. Are you okay with that? Because I'm God. Because I've been in heaven all this time, and I'm not getting what I should get. So now you kind of feel like me. As God, God says. He goes on, he says, Among the prophets of Jerusalem, I also saw a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. How many more pastors have to fall in a sex scandal? Three major pastors of major churches that have done, quote unquote, great work over the last four decades, all three of them failed. All three failed. This way. They strengthen the hands of evildoers and none turns back on his evil. They don't confront evil. They won't call abortion murder. It's murder. God forgives murderers. He forgave David who murdered a man. 
He brought his son through the line of David who murdered a man. There is forgiveness and grace, but if people don't experience that forgiveness and grace, they're going to be manipulated their whole life by their sin. It's murder. It's awful. And where's the church to step up and give encouragement? It's why we support Hannah House in this town. It's why we support people who want to do adoptions and foster and do things. Is because we live in a broken world. He goes on, he says, they are all like Sodom to me. Jerusalem's residents are like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was the city destroyed by fire, by God because of its wickedness. Therefore, this is what the Lord of hosts says concerning the prophets. I'm about to feed them wormwood and give them poison water to drink. They think they're prophesying my name, but they're not. He goes on, for from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. Listen, I don't blame the world for the mess we're in in the United States. I blame the church because God does. The world's going to act lost because they're lost. It's like flying, I've said this illustration before, it's like flying a helicopter and, and you're, you're on a search and rescue mission for someone who's lost in a wilderness. And you're flying around screaming at them, you're lost. You moron, you're lost. Hey, you're lost. And the person's like, yeah, could you help me out? Yeah, go that way. That's it? I don't blame lost people for doing stupid things. They don't know any better. The church is the one that's supposed to know better and be a light into the world. When you stop doing that, God says, when you stop doing that, the nations around you will stop seeing me and they'll become more and more wicked and then you'll become more and more wicked and then it's going to come on you. I'm not saying America was like really great at some point in the past, like we were a Christian nation. We were a nation founded on biblical principles, but Jesus is not in any of the founding documents on purpose. They, they did not mention his name on purpose. People could, Thomas Jefferson didn't want Jesus' name mentioned in any of our founding documents. Thankfully, he wasn't mentioned because we're a mess. So I'm glad his name isn't being drugged through the mud. But at least we were founded on some biblical principles. Now we won't even accept any biblical principles. And that's what God says here. And then he says, don't listen to the words the prophets who prophesy, of the prophets who prophesy to you. They're making you worthless. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the Lord's word, not from what he has said. They keep on saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you'll have peace. God loves you. God loves you. Um, God is very wrathful and he's against you and he might destroy you and he loves you. He doesn't want that to happen to you. He goes on and he says, they have said to everyone who follows the stubbornness of his heart, follow your heart. No harm will come to you. Just follow your heart because God loves you. This was written like two, almost 3,000 years ago. And Jeremiah's like, this is what you're going to say and this is what you're going to do and it's not right. And we're like, no, we're better now. We're smarter. We know. He goes on and he says, yeah, no harm will come to you. God doesn't want any bad to happen to anybody. He goes on and says, I did not send these prophets, yet they ran with a message. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. If they had really stood on my counsel, they would have enabled my people to hear my words and would have turned them back from their evil ways and their evil deeds. I am a God who is only near. Or am I a God who is only near? 
This is the Lord's declaration. And not a God who is far away. He goes on to say, I have heard what the prophets who prophesy a lie in my name have said. I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the midst of my prophets prophesying lies and prophets of the deceits of their own minds? How many more books will we buy off the Christian bookshelf of some person who had a vision of heaven after they died without reading the book of Revelation that gives us the vision of heaven when we die? And comparing it and going, that doesn't sound right because the Revelation says this and the rest of the New Testament, and that's not what this guy's saying. Oh, but he had a vision. He goes on to say, though their dreams, they have, through their dreams that they tell one another, they plan to cause my people to forget my name. As their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. Their fathers worshiped Baal because Baal promised, just do what works. Just do what works. That's working, then let's do that. That's working, then let's do that. That's working, let's do that. Let's do that. That's what Baal worship is. It's do what works. Whatever brings fertility, whatever brings the, do what works. Not, well, is that what God said? And he said, you've had fathers after fathers who just keep doing what works. When is someone gonna say it's not working? Let's ask God. Goes on, he says. I am against the prophets, the Lord's declaration, who use their own tongues to make, declaration, to make a declaration. I'm against those who prophesy false dreams. The Lord's declaration. How many times have we read the word, the Lord's declaration? God's like, I'm saying this, I'm saying this, I'm saying this. I'm not making this up. Jeremiah's not making this up. This is my declaration. Telling them and leading my people astray with their falsehoods and their boasting. One of the sure signs that you can see when a false prophet or when someone starts going off is you'll see the boasting do you remember what Paul boasted about the apostle Paul who had every right to boast more than any believer even the apostles that lived in Jerusalem and he says that I have every right to boast and he's like but I boast in my weakness he says I, I boast in who Christ is not in what I've done and I've done nothing but Christ has done it through me that's Paul the apostles response to boasting I will boast in Christ. And we got people running around boasting in their church model and boasting in this and boasting in that. Just stop. I can fall into the trap if I'm not careful. What does God's word say? Let's boast in him. Let's boast in his word. This is what he says. And he goes on, he says, it was not I who sent or commanded them and they are of no benefit at all to these people. This is the Lord's declaration. Jesus says it this way in Matthew. He recognizes his people have been scattered by the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the false prophets, and the Roman officials. All the same things Nahum lists, and they're scattered. And here's what Jesus says when he sees his people scattered. This is right before he's going to be crucified, the last time he goes into Jerusalem before they cry out, Hosanna, and then he gives some hard teaching, and they're like, let's kill him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets... And stones those who are sent to her. What's your response to the truth of God in your life? I know what mine is initially. I want to defend myself. I want to stone the person that, how dare you accuse me, blah, 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 versus saying, you know, maybe they might be right. There might be some truth there. I might need to check my heart. 
How often I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Yet you were not willing. You wanted to be scattered. You wanted to run here and there. You didn't want to stay put. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. And Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to transfigure. And then one day I'm going to come back and everyone's going to recognize that I'm the promised one of the Old Testament, the one who is coming, Yahweh, who's going to save his people. And everyone's going to say, Hosanna, he is God. And then God is going to separate them into the sheep and the goats, which we'll see in just a second. Jesus says this in John 10. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Remember, Nahum says that the gates of Nineveh are going to be burned down. Jeremiah says the gates of Jerusalem will be burned. And Jesus says, you ain't burning this door. This door won't burn. He says, and I will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to still kill and destroy. I have come. In other words, the thieves are going to take off running. They're going to take what they want. They're like the merchants. Take what they want and cut and leave. He says, nope, I'm not going to do that. I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance. And it's not the worldly abundance he's talking about here. He's talking about the inner abundance of life. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He doesn't run away to better pastures. The hired man, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. That's exactly what's going to happen in Nineveh. It's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired man and he doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. As the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Where are the fathers that will live like this? Where are the men that will do this? And where are the men when they fail to do this, they'll point their family back to the one who can do this because they really can't fully do it. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're scattered. And I must bring them in also and I will... They will listen to my voice when we send out missionaries. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I'm laying down my life so I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. This isn't somebody killing me. I've got full authority to do this, and this was the plan of God since the foundation of creation, and I'm going to do it. I have the right to lay down to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I've received this command from my Father. In Luke, Jesus says, I came to bring fire on the earth. This is Jesus speaking, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. That doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound like Jesus with a little lamb on his shoulder petting it with blue eyes and white hair and, you know. Jesus is like, I wish I could set this place on fire and make it right again because I want to see the glory of God but it's not time yet because there are people who need to be saved. He goes on, he says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and I know how it consumes me until it's finished. Do you think that I came here to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There's going to be divisions among the people you love dearly if you preach the word of God and you speak the truth. Because you hope that in the midst of the division and the scatter, 
when they finally feel the scattering, when they feel the loneliness, they'll come back to Jesus. That's the point. It's not Jesus is like, I want to scatter you all over the place because I don't love you. He's like, no, I'm not going to allow you to lead a bunch of people astray, so I'm going to bring it together. He goes on and says this, therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, Jesus says, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. This is Father's Day. Jesus says, if you acknowledge me, you can guarantee it. I'm going to, I know him. He's one of ours. He's surrendered his life to us. Yeah, he's a mess. He's a total mess. But he's not trusting in himself to save himself. He's been trusting in us. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth, Jesus said. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the member of his, of his household. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Because you won't be able to love them right. They're going to become your God if you love them more than me. And they need to know that you love me more than you love them so that they don't become little gods. He goes on to say, the person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross, that means you're dying. When you pick up a cross, you've been sentenced to death. Romans didn't let you pick up a cross and then at the last minute be like, oh, sorry, we made a mistake, give it back. Romans, when you picked up a cross, they made sure you were dead. That was their job, to be a spectacle to everyone else to say, this is what happens when you challenge authority. Jesus said, I'm going to the cross so that the world will know this is what happens when you challenge my father's authority. And I'm going to go all the way. And this is what happens when you have a father who's in charge of life. He brings you back from the dead. He goes on, he says, and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. Anyone losing his life because of me will find true life. Jesus goes on to say in Luke, he says, now great crowds were traveling with him. He's a popular guy. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down to calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? If you recognize you're scattered, you sit down and say, how do I get it all back together? You calculate what that looks like. And Jesus is saying, if you calculate your inability to save yourself, you'll surrender. You'll pick up your cross. Because you've counted the cost. What we've done is give people a cheap gospel that doesn't count the cost anymore. And then we're shocked that 75% of kids that grow up in evangelical churches in the United States of America are never coming back to the church. That's the current statistic. You want to know why? Because we haven't helped them count the cost. We've given them the false prophet's hope of, oh, you feel scattered. Oh, just Jesus loves you. Jesus, and he does love them. But there's this other side that we've been reading about for like an hour that we don't talk about. He goes on and he says, when they saw him, this is after Jesus died and was resurrected, when the disciples saw him, they worshiped, but some still doubted. You may doubt. Guess what? That's okay. God can handle your doubts. I doubt all the time. And I go to God and I go to his word and I say, I'm doubting and this is what your word says. So I'm not going to listen to the doubt. I'm going to listen to this. That's called faith. 
It goes on, he says, then Jesus came near. Remember he said, you're scattered? Jesus' heart is to bring you near. Like a hen gathers her chicks. I want to bring you near, but you keep running away. <laughs> Stop. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You go therefore, scatter yourselves, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the heavenly family, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. See, that's the part we leave out. We love the conversion part. Go tell everybody about Jesus. Done. Um, it says to teach everything that he commanded us. Jesus wrote the Old Testament, by the way, because he's called the Word. So that includes the Old Testament. And remember, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. You feel scattered. You live in a nation that feels scattered. You live in a place that feels scattered. The question is, are you willing to know that I will never leave you or forsake you if you know me? I am always with you regardless of the mess you're in, the circumstances or whatever. Will you surrender everything, all the relationships, all the wealth, all the merchants, all, everything and everybody you're trusting in, will you lay those on the altar and say, God, it's all yours. I'm done. I surrender. Acts says it this way. Then when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the periods the Father has set by his own authority. That is exactly what we love. When's this going to happen? God, when? When? How? When? Not, nope, not, you don't know. Sorry. Not been given to you. Love you. Right? Are we there yet? No. When are we going to be there? I don't know. Are we there yet? No. When are we going to be, just enjoy the trip. Stop picking on your brother. Let's do something constructive. <laughs> Goes on, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you'll be my witnesses, starting with where you live in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. He says, you will receive the power to be able to live this out. Even though you feel scattered, even though it seems like a mess, even though you'll receive power. And again, Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with them, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. This is the end of it all. This is what Nahum was warning, that there's going to come a day when God will fully judge and set things right. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the goats, he'll say, depart from me. Then he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me either. He says, if you truly believe I am who I say I am, if you truly believe that I'm the shepherd that's going to gather you, then your focus will be going out to try to get as many people gathered to Jesus as you can. And as many people gathered to his flock as you can. That's the heart of someone who gets this. Nahum finishes with this. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep. We looked at that before. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There's a hopelessness. He says, there is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. And all who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? And that's how Nahum ends the book. 
Listen, that's not the bookend for us. And it's also not the bookend for the Ninevites if they'll repent. Because we have someone who will save us. He will gather us. He will deliver us from our cruelty and he will cause us to be kind. He changes us. There is hope. There were hope. The reason Nahum's book is there is to try to give hope to the Ninevites. Maybe there were some Ninevites. Maybe there were some Assyrians who did surrender their hearts to God. Who did say, you know what? I don't believe my culture. I don't believe in them. I don't believe all this garbage. I do want to believe in Yahweh God, but I'm stuck in this mess. Great. There's one who's coming. There's one. I know you feel scattered. I know you feel. There's one who cares about you. He will send his Messiah. You will be saved. It's the same message for us today. So let me ask you, where are you this morning? Do you know Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to Yahweh who saves? That's what Jesus' name means? Or do you keep looking to the merchants, to the scribes, to the pastors and shepherds, to everybody else without looking and saying, who is going to tell me the truth? And can I just encourage you, lean into God's word. Don't take my word for this stuff. Read the word. It's why we go through so much scripture every Sunday. It's not me. This is the word. If I'm wrong, correct me, please, because I can be wrong. But the word isn't wrong. And that's what I want for you. It's what I want for you to take out to the world. It's what God wants for us to take out to the people who feel scattered, who are fatherless, who are enslaved. He wants us to proclaim to them their freedom in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Nahum's book that just is a reminder of the whole theme of Scripture. Lord, I know this can be a hard day for people. This can be a day that's difficult because of we're broken fathers, my own children. I'm a broken father. There are things I've done and things that I wish I could change and go back and do that can never be undone but I thank you that my children know you and that you say that there is no greater joy that a father has than to know that his children are walking in the truth and I thank you that I have that joy. But I recognize there are people out here who don't have that joy. Lord, I pray that they would see that they can find their joy in you. They can find their joy in the spiritual children that you raise up. They can find their joy in crying out to you and coming before you and asking for your forgiveness and laying their lives and hearts down for you and trusting you with the outcome of their life and their loved ones' lives. And Lord, I thank you that we are in a season of remembering what you've done, that you are the heavenly Father, that you set the captives free. And Lord, help us to be willing to pick up our cross and follow you. For those in Nineveh, for those of the Assyrian Empire who would have stood up and said yes to Nahum, they would have been persecuted. They probably would have been executed for agreeing with a prophet like this. And yet they would have been right. So God, help us to be bold to make you known. Lord, we thank you for those that you've sent out from our church. We thank you for Mark and Roxanne who are going to be leaving to serve you. We thank you for the opportunity to partner together to send shepherds out who love you and want to teach your flocks the truth and to raise up sheep who want to go out and make you known to the world and provide their their own flesh, their own clothing, their, their own wool, their own bodies to be a sacrifice so that others might know. Lord, make us into a church like that. Make me into a man like that. And Lord, help us to know that we don't have to be fearful of your wrath because you give us the promise of your peace. 
So Lord, if anyone here hasn't surrendered to you, I pray today would be the day. It's not complicated. They just need to say, I surrender. You're God, I'm not. You sent Jesus to save me because I can't save myself. Amen. And the Bible says if they believe that in their heart and they proclaim it with their mouth, then they will be saved. And for those of us who are trying to live this out, I pray for your patience with us. I pray like Jeremiah that you would, you would keep your full wrath off of us, your full discipline, and discipline us lovingly and kindly as we try to figure this out. Help us to help one another, we pray. And we thank you that you give us life and breath to make this known to other people. 